This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Georgia Marion, who's a naturopath and nutritionist with over 15 years experience and who specialises in women's health, particularly hormonal imbalances, fertility issues and postpartum support. Now, today we'll be discussing how sugar impacts female reproductive issues. Welcome to FX Medicine, Georgia. How are you going? Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. I'm great. Okay, so I guess we start right, start right back at the beginning. How are sugar intake and female reproductive physiology and health connected? Short question. <laughs> how long have we got? Yeah. You know, but I guess my short answer to that question <laughs> is it's actually pretty complex because you need to consider the different body systems and organs and tissues that are, and their hormones that are involved in female physiology and reproductive and glucose metabolism. And you need to consider the bi-directional functional relationship between them. And then from there, you need to consider how sugar can be impacting them individually and via how they're interconnected and how that can vary between one person and another, depending on their own makeup. So I, that's really where the complexity comes into it, I think. Okay, so we're, we're well-versed in thinking about the liver's issues with dealing yes. with um, the conversions of sugar and the pancreas involved in interim release. But what other um, tissues, organs and systems are involved? And let's talk a little bit about their interconnectedness. Yeah, so, you know, really here we're talking about, of course, your reproductive organs and tissues and the hormones, in particular estrogen and progesterone, although it has an effect to a degree on all of them. You know, your thyroid gland and your thyroid hormones and then you're looking at largely your gastrointestinal tract and your liver and then beyond that it's the oxidative metabolic pathways in those various areas because they all function individually and synergistically to regulate both female physiology and to a certain degree glucose metabolism <laughs> you know so if you can imagine a bit of a you know if you can imagine putting a picture in your head about this and drawing a line with each of these it, it becomes a lot of arrows and a lot of lines because it actually did that. <laughs> i did do that because i was doing this and I'm, this is this is crowding my head so you know so with your sex steroid hormones you know, we know that they're, they're involved in regulating, you know, your menstrual cycle and essentially all things being in balance, providing an um, environment that, you know, that promotes fertilisation and implantation and, and should, should conception occur in bionic development. But they also have a generally beneficial role in insulin action, you know, your estrogens and, and your progesterones and glucose homeostasis, you know, so because estrogen improves insulin sensitivity and it's involved in various processes to do with that as well as hepatic you know glucose metabolic processes and that's a whole topic in itself right but then you add in your thyroid gland <laughs> so you know your thyroid hormones they have direct effect on your oocyte and ovarian surface epithelium your endometrium as well as your placental tissue so it's not surprising you know that your thyroid hormones your t4 and your t3 they're involved in a lot of the molecular mechanisms that regulate things like you know, endometrial thickness and follicular genesis and ovulation and fertility and then embryonic development. But, of course, the primary function of your thyroid gland is 
the regulation of energy metabolism. So, of course, you know, sugar intake and excessive sugar intake is going to be involving the thyroid gland, <laughs> you know. Um, and then so, you've, I mean, they're two big topics in themselves, but then you add in the gut and the liver. <laughs> you know, these are all quite large topics. So just to really give a broad strokes, really, I guess, is, you know, the gastrointestinal tract and the liver, they can also have a significant impact on reproductive health and function, you know, because your liver is involved in your steroid hormone synthesis as well as, you know, your metabolism of estrogens and your estrogen metabolites by your phase one and phase two and methylation pathways. You know, your liver is involved in the synthesis of your SHBG, mm. you know, which affects your estrogen and testosterone uh, activity or levels and activity in the body. And then the metabolism of your estrogens are also occurring in your gut, you know, and but then your microbiome also produces a certain percentage of your peripheral T3, you know, your bioactive T3. So, you know, so gastrointestinal tract and liver can have a significant impact on your female physiology, but they also have a, a significant impact on glucose metabolism. So you can see where the complexity starts oh, to come in. I'm, already <laughs> I'm, I'm just I'm thinking about patients and, yeah. and when we're talking about fertility issues and mm. we know that we are an overweight society, I get it, but many um, females who present for IVF um, are categorised, if you like, to say your weight is the issue and you need to lose weight before you'll get benefit or, or that will be, you know, a, pushing a stone uphill until we lose weight. Um, but what you, you're saying is that it could, it, apart from just the weight, it could be the intake of sugar that is affecting that fertility as well as those other components. Yeah, well, it's certainly not going to be helping. <laughs> no, know, and that's, that's the thing, right? You know, and that's, but you know, so... it might be so, the straw that breaks the camel's back. And that's that's the thing. It's and I'm, I'm certainly not saying that sugar is the root of all evil in the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and we all need we all need glucose. We all need, you know, your brain needs it, your body needs it to be able to function, you know. So I'm not saying no one should have any sugar at all. That's not sensible nutrition advice. But say so that to know, a nutritionist. <laughs> no that's it but i mean you know when you've got to consider and that's like what i was touching on before when you're considering the environment that is within someone and if, if someone is seeking assisted reproductive technology you know obviously something's out of balance somewhere so mm -hmm. you really you know unfortunately for those people you know they need to be looking at certain things a little bit closer a little bit more detail than someone that's they not have issues with conceiving and for some women that might be sugar as a factor among several depending on what's going on to to bring them there um you were mentioning thyroid before and yeah. i remember from the bioceutical symposium uh, 2020 yes. um Karazian was talking all about thyroid and you know, you got the picture in your mind that the thyroid was the the driver, the cause, mm. I've got gip gips going here, quotation marks, um, <laughs> of so many disorders. But you've always got to think about, well, okay, what caused the thyroid to become out of balance? Is it only genes or could it indeed be dietary intake in part influenced by sugar? 
So, you know, if you look at, just say, just say thyroid, you know, we know that thyroid hormone dysregulation, it can affect reproductive health, you know, as Detise touched on and, and, and anyone in this sort of area would be aware of that, you know, because it can contribute. So with your disordered reproductive hormone profiles can lead to impaired ovarian and follicular growth and then also follicle steroid production. But then you add it, so that can happen anyway, whether someone's having excessive sugar or not. Yeah. But then you add sugar in and that can that can make things worse, you know, because glucose metabolic processes and endogenous concentrations, you know, it can affect things systemically and locally in the ovaries, you know. So hypo and hyper animal models, it influenced ovarian, you know, glute expression, your GLUT expression, right? And then you've got your impaired thyroid function, which can contribute you know, we were talking before how obviously it's closely involved in energy metabolism yeah. and that can contribute to elevated glucose concentration in the ovaries, which can increase ovarian oxidative stress levels and that can further impact on these processes, you know. So I think, um, you know, and that's just the thyroid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and what about how females cope with ex the excessive stressors of the 21st century? I mean, being nowadays not just breadwinners, but also the caregivers, the, the meal preparers, the, the home maintenance people, you know, where, while guys sit there watching footy. <laughs> um, women do so much more. They have so much weight put onto them. There's a lot of, there's a lot of tabs open, I think, yeah. as a female that I think, and this is generalising, I think that, and it's just the way that male and female brains are generally speaking different is that females always have more than lots of tabs open mm. and that's their normal and not to say that's right, but that's how it is compared to, you know, the male way of thinking that tends to be a little bit more singular focused, which is, you know, probably not a bad way to be <laughs> when you touch on, you know, how much I think, and I see this a lot in clinic, how much a lot of female stress is to a certain degree we, you know, put is unnecessary high expectations that we hold of ourselves, and whether those expectations come from internally or whether we come that comes from, you know, our perceived um, external people's external expectations. Obviously, I guess is another topic, but I yeah. think um, definitely stress. You know, whatever is driving it. And here we're talking about sugar, but I, I'm yet to see a female clinic patient to do with any of these types of issues to do with fertility or hormone imbalances where stress is not playing a role. <laughs> yeah, know, well, well that's right. But, but then you, you have to look back. You know, when we're talking about yeah. sugar intake, it's not as simple as sugar yeah. intake because then we have to think about why. Why, yeah. exactly. And that's always the thing. And I think this is why I think it was important, you know, and this is why I was curious to look into this because you see these, these patients all the time you know, where there's excessive sugar intake happening in various ways. We think, well, why, why is that happening? And, and how is it that one person might be presenting in a certain way, you know, with reprodu certain reproductive imbalances or fertility issues, you know, with, say, excessive sugar intake being a factor compared to someone else when it's presenting in a different way? And I think that's where you've got to be taking into account all these interconnections combined with someone's own individual makeup, you mm. know, and that's how you can... You, yeah, so, um, but then it's interesting when you start looking at the impact of sugar on 
you know, on females, and we're talking about female reproductive health here, is largely, you know, the underlying mechanisms, and it's not surprising really, but is, you know, obviously insulin resistance and oxidative stress and inflammation in the organs and tissues that we've been talking about. So ultimately the, you know, the functional and structural effects in these areas bring on, can bring on hormone imbalances, you know, to do with levels and signaling, you know, and then that can progress to reproductive tissue and organ dysfunction, whether you're talking structurally and then going on to functional uh, dysfunction. And then depending on the person and how long they've had it for and what else is going on, that can then go on to present with suboptimal reproductive function and outcomes. So, uh, and then there's a whole lot of mechanisms involved in leading to that. So, um and so to pull back a little bit broader from that is that you need to consider obviously the person in front of you naturally that's what we do in this sort of area but when you're looking at so are you talking about a i think a more accurate way to look at it are you, do you have a premenopausal woman in front of you who doesn't have overt metabolic you know issues or do you have a premenopausal woman who has pcos type that's diagnosed or presentation yeah and if, you know it's pcos what subtype is she, you know, or if it's, um, is, is someone perimenopausal? And if they are, you know, what's, what stage are they and how is perimenopause transition going for them? Because, say, with those sort of people, say, if you're talking about PCOS women or, say, perimenopausal women, you know, they've obviously got a particular hormonal profile going on. Say, you know, sugar is one of the main drivers of, <clears throat> excuse me, insulin resistance. And when they're perimenopausal, their estrogen is all over the shop, <laughs> you know, for that period yeah. of time. And estrogen, we spoke before about how, generally speaking, it increases insulin sensitivity. So when your estrogen levels are all over the shop, you can imagine the effect that's having on someone's insulin sensitivity. And then also it's when there's, issues with insulin sensitivity combined with the hormonal picture that's going on there's a loss of muscle mass and an increase in your abdominal fat which then also increases insulin resistance and they also have a bit of testosterone dominance going on just for extra measure yeah. <laughs> extra fun and games during penopause and there's a bi-directional relationship between testosterone and insulin resistance you know in terms of it can testosterone excessive testosterone can make insulin resistant worse and 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 so it can go back and forth and so essentially when those sort of women if someone who is who's in that sort of picture sugar is she's got this hormonal picture going on but then sugar is making that worse so i think it's more accurate you know so that her symptoms will be worse i guess in terms yep. of she might always be able to get have having she might have always experienced hot flushes but the, if you add in that and the stress side of it which can also make it worse more severe i should say you know they're getting their periods are heavier than they might have otherwise been their hot flushes are more severe and more frequent you know the energy fluctuations and mood fluctuations are perhaps more severe than otherwise so um and then you can throw in say gut health which we've spoken about but you know everyone needs good gut health but particularly a perimenopausal women that has estrogen levels fluctuating like she does you know you need good gut health to be able to help metabolize those so so i think it's you know and I, so i think it's more relevant to consider if you're going to be grouping people into particular types considering that as a broad starting point <laughs> because their hormonal picture is going to be influencing how sugar is impacting them to a degree yeah well i mean even further patient populations um pregnant women we've discussed pre um 
women requiring fertility management, but also um, right down to the period that they are in their cycle. I'm sure this has got to have. Yeah. yeah. Yes, so, for sure. And it depends on how someone, yeah. And that's why, to be fair, I did start saying it's a little bit complex. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so just clamor at the start. <laughs> okay, I'll um, give you that. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, and, and so if someone has, um, is getting IVF, depending on the type of fertility assistance they're getting, you know, what's led them to why they needed to? Is it is it female factor? Is it male factor? And if it's female factor, what is it? Is it um, something that can be picked up and diagnosed or is it something that's unexplained, you know, which is um, something that's not to say it's not there but it's not necessarily looked at, in, you know, in the same detail. So I think you've always got to be considering all these. I, th I, th I think it's... I don't think there would be many women that were whatever category you're looking at putting people in, you know, you know, that we've been talking about where excessive sugar intake is, is, is not having some sort of adverse effect. It just might be how it present for them. And if it's something that um, is, is presenting in such a way that, that that's impacting their quality of life or whatever it is, their health that they're trying to achieve. Yeah. You know, so. Right. Well, you mentioned um, quantities. So let's talk about the different yeah. types of sugars and indeed the quantities, because we know that sugar is one of those generalised terms that mm -hmm. there's an inference there, but we need to be careful about what we mean by sugar. Yeah, I think we do. And it's interesting when I was looking at the research on this, I was a bit surprised because it wasn't, I was, I was expecting that it would always be fructose you know and like you know your your process fructose but the studies that were looking and seeing effects here it was different types of sugar that they were looking at that note those noticed effects so like mm. some studies looked at dietary glycemic index and glycemic load you know so intake of breakfast cereals and white rice and potatoes and found that they were associated with a higher risk of your ovulatory infertility versus your low gi foods where there was a reduced risk <coughs> excuse me Whereas other studies were looking at the impact of actual table sugar and soft drink and chocolate and all the fun things in life <laughs> to do with, you know, dysmenorrhea. And, <laughs> and you know, one study was finding that, <clears throat> excuse me, it was more than four teaspoons a day that was associated with an increased incidence of dysmenorrhea, whereas a separate study found it was more than 12 and what I found interesting to do with the 12, uh, not with the more than 12 teaspoons a day, so obviously that's a pretty broad range. Yeah, but what I found interesting was that the, the 12 teaspoons, teaspoons a day study, they classified moderate intake as 6 to 12 teaspoons, which is probably moderate in terms of what's actually happening, but moderate in terms of the impact, you know, on the body, probably not so moderate <laughs> in a lot of the population we're talking about. Um, so... And then when we were looking at women who were going through ART, it was actually not very much at all. So they compared, you know, sugar-sweetened beverages versus artificial sweetened beverages. And obviously artificial sweetened beverages are a whole other mm. discussion. Mm. <laughs> but they were associated with lower quality and number of oocytes and top-quality embryos after stimulation. And, wow. And that, yeah, so we're, we're really talking about... Me, that was the 6 to 12 
level? This is a separate study where they looked at one cup or more a day of sugar-sweetened beverages versus no intake at all, had lower lower quality and a lower clinical rate. Yeah, so this is the thing. Obviously, there is other things going on as to if someone is getting ART, there are other factors going on as far as that things are out of balance and, and what have you. But as I said, if someone's, say, going through that sort of process, um, it's not going to be helping. <laughs> well, you know, no, so. but, I mean, you mentioned all yeah. the fun things in life. And, yeah. it, you know, what... <laughs> what <laughs> we Obviously, if somebody's got a high sugar intake, I mean, you were mentioning 12, 12 teaspoons of sugar being the sort of upper range. Um, that's what they no. That's what they studied. But the average US woman, her normal intake, moderate intake, is considered to be eight teaspoons. So that's about forty-one point right. five grams a day. Yeah. yeah. So okay. Yeah. So so if let's say eight teaspoons is the moderate intake, the the normal intake. I hate that word normal. Um, that's really easily um, exceeded. You get a little bit of stress. You get a woman. Seeing as we're speaking about women, you you get a woman who has two cups of two teaspoons of sugar in her coffee, and if she's having four coffees a day, that's already your normal yeah. intake. Then you've got chocolate in the evening, some ice cream, and some flavouring on top of that. Wine. And that's not taking into account, I think, more the, the subvert sugar. You know, things that mm. are in say your savoury foods or mm. your tin foods that you would necessarily unless you're looking for it realize yeah. that it's there so and i think i think you know people are becoming more educated with that now but i mean it very much is you know and our mind works in funny ways with you know the foods we count yeah <laughs> this is the food we don't. <laughs> you know okay you this is coffee I, don't I know you that's not sugar yeah that's it whereas if i drink it well then it totally doesn't count so <laughs> you know so and the subject foods like you know all the savory foods or sauces that sugar is in on top of that um, you know the things that we associate it with and that's where it can really add up so I think a lot of people if you say to them the average intake is say six to eight a day oh, I wouldn't eat that much and then you no. can look at it and go oh actually it's easier to have that much than you would think so and then when you consider all the you know healthy foods that are out like all your raw food desserts there's a gravitation to that, or they much be better but you know Sugar is still sugar, <laughs> whether it's got an organic, organic halo over it or not. So it's still going to have the same physiological effect on your body So in the, in the certain quantities. So, Well, let's go into how you actually turn this around in a tick. But firstly, how yes. do you assess these people? <laughs> like you've spoken about thyroid hormones. You, we've spoken yes. about, you know, stress hormones, so cortisol there. We've spoken about the impact of how... Um, the body handles sugar, so you've got insulin and blood sugar levels. So what what assessments do you take or make? How many labs do you do and what do you find are the most useful? So I think you always got to start with the diet, particularly when we're talking about sugar, right? It's the most, start with the most obvious spot in terms of what is their actual sugar intake and assessing that in whichever way that someone does it in their own clinic sort of thing in terms of if it's a recall or food frequency questionnaire or, or yep. what have you, um, you know, or doing it over, say, I usually do it over three days, uh, over three days if you can, um, during a week and then say one day on a weekend. So right. um, if depending on 
because then, you know, their patterns tend to be... You really want to take out all the fun, don't you? Yeah. I really do. <laughs> fun police. Snatch pass slash fun police is my title. So. Um, so, but, you know, with your sugar intake, the overt stuff, you know, that we all know, you don't need an intuition degree to know about those ones. But then the subvert ones, like consumption of drinks, counting drinks, like we spoke about, you know, a savoury processed foods, tin foods, sources, condiments and that sort of thing, looking at that type of thing. And also looking at really what's driving the high sugar intake if they're having a lot and also if it's changed, you know, if it's changed and, you know, what's happened around that, say it changed two years ago, is it sugar cravings and, if, you know, and then you can unpack that a little bit more. If it's we're looking at dietary stuff, are they having enough protein? It's easy to eat plenty of carbs throughout the day, but, I mean, are they having enough protein and, and good fats, really? Are they actually eating enough? Because, you know, we yeah. there's a bit of a culture at the moment of cutting out a whole food group. <laughs> but it's got to be replaced with something because your body's hormones are going to drive you to replace it with something, you know. Um, are they eating enough at each meal? Is their portion control too strict? And, you know, depending on what their physical activity levels are, are they eating enough to replace that? Yeah, is there a lack of energy and is that driving the sugar intake or is it stress like we touched on before? You know, is, is that what's driving it? Generally, it's a combination of factors with a lot of women I see is that, you know, a combination of stress and lack of energy and sleep deprivation and wearing many hats or having many tabs open and they tend to go with what your body's, body is biologically driving you to get more energy and to, and to respond to all of this input and stress so that's the easiest thing to go for right so so that's probably the first place i'd be looking and then looking at your overall glycemic index and glycemic load of the overall dietary pattern and you know especially in relation to their metabolic picture and what their physical activity is you know how often are they training if are they training if they are how often they're doing it and all that sort of all those sort of things and then you can look at you know, particular levels of particular nutrients that can be affected by high sugar intake, such as vitamin C and vitamin D and magnesium and your calcium and chromium. So you could probably start there as far as your dietary assessment and looking at those types of things, mm -hmm. you know, looking at, you know, your anthropometric measurements, you know, with it, this type of thing, you know, that what's their waist circumference, what's their BMI, obviously it's a pretty blunt tool, but, you know, at least it's a, it's a place to record it in terms of, you know, if there's changes or what have you, but you need to be doing it um, along with obviously all your other measurements. Yep. You know, obviously do you, over... Do you do, do you do, by the way, um, a combination of BMI with hip-to-waist ratio, wrist assessments, that sort of thing? Do you do anthropometry? I usually do BMI, obviously, do obviously have their weight in BMI and a waist circumference. So, you right. know, with this type of thing, because combined with, you know, the other information you're getting from them with your with your assessment you know you, and then with the, when you're going into pathologies you know you can you can get a good picture with that or at least where to go next so and then obviously and not you're not going to do all these pathologies with everybody <laughs> some patients don't want to do any some want to do a lot of them but obviously you also always want to as you said before giving them the most bang for their buck so what are their if if it's relevant blood sugar parameters obviously you're fasting insulin particularly there's no point just taking glucose if you're not looking at insulin with these mm. this type of presentation you know your female sex uh, steroid hormone panel you know what's going on there you know if it's relevant their gut like you know dysbiosis and intestinal permeability obviously you can get really good functional gut tests these days that measure a lot of different parameters so you get a really good overall picture you know if it's relevant liver um thyroid especially <laughs> 
you know, um, and then you can look into, you know, if it's relevant to looking at oxidative stress parameters and inflammation and vitamin and mineral status. Um, so they're probably things that you'd be considering to see if it's worthwhile, depending on what they're presenting with and where you think things might be out of balance. That might be relevant in terms of changing your intervention or not, you know. So, and then obviously you can look at their clinical presentation. Yeah. Just a little bit about the earlier uh, assessments. When you're talking about, uh, you know, BMI, hip-to-waist ratio um, and some other anthropometric, sorry, pometric? Anthropometric? Yes. Metric, yes, um, assessments. Um, what about things like bioimpedance and the various types of of things out there? I mean, you can get... $8 scales that, you know, apparently assess your um, lean body mass now. So how sensitive do you find these? How useful do you find these sorts of pieces of equipment? Do you need to pay the thousands of dollars for the more sensitive, you know, for, uh, I, forgive me, I think it might be a six-channel um, yeah. um, bioimpedance or, or um or can you get away with just simple measures with a tape measure and, and a set of scales? Uh, look, I think I think everyone, you know, uses different tools and strategies and assessments in, in clinical practice. I don't I don't use bioimpedance personally because I, I find it might be useful in some ways, but I think you can get a lot a lot of information, you know, from the sort of questions you're asking in these types of measures that we're talking about, like a set of scales and you know and being able to measure them. And should should you need to, you know, yeah. because you can look at someone and you can and then you can look at their pathologies and then you can get see i think you can get similar information say if someone like if you've got someone that's you know like i guess the the skinny fat person you know that you talk about that you know to look at them they're lean but then you take the pathologies like inflammation or blood glucose and what have you and you can see that there's metabolic stuff going on so i think you can get the same information in other ways depending on how someone likes to practice so and, um, yeah. and looking at the labs, um, are there any labs that you tend to sort of favour as standards, like, you know, fasting insulin, um, your thyroid assessments, antibodies, um, cortisol, cortisol awakening response, for instance? That was something I yeah, found I really interesting with Carrie Jones. I did too. And to be honest, because I haven't used the cortisol awakening response before, but I think I, um, yeah, I was really interested to see what she'd observed clinically. So um, it's uh, on my list of, of uh, clinical tests to add. <laughs> I, I still have, a, I, my question, I guess, with that test is um, if you're going to take the, the normal daily, uh, what is it, four tests throughout the day yeah. um, via the pipette, that's the standard way of doing it versus the cortisol awakening response, which is the short peak in the morning that you're, that you're checking. Um, and I think you do three tests there. I'm, I don't know, but I wonder if, I mean, what if you just paid for that daily test, if it was cheaper, but just did it here? <laughs> Wouldn't you be getting just as much useful information anyway? I don't know. Haven't looked into it yet. Yeah, and I think you just let the cat out of the bag for the pathology. That's, that's, your, that's your homework. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, we've, we've spoken about thyroid. Um, what about things like neurotransmitters? What about um, uh, the effects of, I mean, not just, let's say histamine or let's say GABA? Hmm. 
Do you ever use any of the urinary marker assessments? No, but I found that interesting with Detisa's talk in, at the symposium. I, I you know, I, um, I have, I would like to look further into those when in the in certain women. So, like you know, with some women who are hypothyroid or having subclinical thyroid issues, where there are mood issues or anxiety and that mm. sort of those sort of presentations going on, you know, I think it would be worthwhile adding that in in certain cases to dig a bit further where there might be certain you know neurotransmitters having an impact on that you know i wonder i wonder about that so that's not something i've, I've used but i would like to and, and what about even simple stuff like blood sugar monitors are like what 80 dollars odd now um yeah. i mean blood sugar your insulin, yeah forgive me like if, so you still want to be getting insulin like if so you'd like you have your plasma yeah. glucose but you want to get your insulin that's right. So, do you do you ever use BGLs, or do you just take a like a fast? I think, I think, yeah. Well, if I mean, if they're only going to get one test out of the two, you you know you go for insulin. But ideally, you want to get the whole picture. It's like if you're going to get thyroid, you, know, you, you can get a little bit from TSH, but you're not really going to get enough information that's really actually helpful. So, you want to get your full thyroid panel. Yeah. You know, if 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 you can do it. So, same sort of thing with blood glucose. Mm. And uh, what about uh, doing a two-hour or even a four-hour um, glucose tolerance test? Have you ever? Um, investigated these and I, I mean Mark Dr Mark Houston used to favor the four hours and I just thought good luck getting somebody to sit in a in a pathology yeah. lab for four hours while they're feeling like absolute rubbish <laughs> yes yeah yeah I think um you know I, I think for the most part it's probably realistic you know if it's relevant to do a blood glucose the two hour one to be honest so yeah um because as you said you can you, you'd love to have the patient where you can have all these pathologies and have the perfect you know but that's not reality mm. so everyone's not going to do every test and you know to expect someone to do a four-hour test when it isn't going to change your intervention is the main point you want to you're really only doing pathologies if it's actually changing how you would manage and how you would treat that person rather than getting the information just for interest's sake. What about access to these tests in Australia? Do you ever find pushback or do you just get the patient to pay privately? Sometimes, yeah, sometimes there is. And often it's, it's, a, it's a cost sort of thing, but I think it comes down to how you're communicating with the patient. And it's obviously always up to them. You know, it's very much a partnership situation in clinic in that, you know, if, um, you know, I might know a lot about certain things but then they're the expert on them. And so it's about, say, in that case, explaining, okay, what's the reasoning for the test and what we should get out of it and what, how that might change, how we, how we intervene or not. Yep. You know, and then it's up to them whether they decide to go ahead with it. But obviously as a, as a clinician, everyone's had patients where they would really find a particular test result useful, but then they decide not to go down that track and then, okay, well, then you, then you, then you go from there. So yep. but um, sometimes there can be, but... And, and do you find um, reticence to uh, do these tests, particularly things like fasting insulin with GPs, or do you just um, get the patient to pay privately? Uh, often, yeah, often I'll, we'll go, I'll go privately because uh, depending on what it is that you're getting tested, say like, you know, thyroid, if someone's thyroid is, you know, normal, but clinically they're not presenting as normal, you know, getting them to get a full thyroid test can be tricky so i often find it's a little bit 
easier to go. And I explain both options to them. I always say to them, go see a doctor and get, you know, and um, um, this is an option to pay for it. And then, you know, like anything, you, pre you present the evidence and the information and then it's up to them how they decide to proceed is usually how I go. Yeah, I'm, I'm encouraged at least to see that GPs are more often... Um, Yes. screening for thyroid antibodies these days, whereas before it was just this denial. <laughs> it was a blanket. Yeah, denial. it's definitely more coming out, which is good, you know, which is good because we've all seen, you know, in this sort of area, mm. women who are presenting with subclinical hyperthyroid mm. issues and they're, and they're suffering and something is out of balance when you look at them clinically. You don't have to take a thyroid test to know that. Yeah. Something's out of balance. You know, you to taste at a touch time is that the thyroid imbalances can present in so many different ways. There can be the common symptoms and cl common clinical presentation, but it's so varied that you know you can't put people in the box of you know this this TSH above here. Well, you're perfectly normal when they're yeah, perfectly normal. Yeah, <laughs> perfectly normal, even though you you can't even stay awake at night and everything's changed in the last three years since you've had a child. You know, mm -hmm. so with your hormones so um you know i'm glad that there's more information coming to do with that and tsh levels just tying into something you said way earlier and that was about the microbiota microbiome um yes. and detice was mentioning this as well that there was a a substantial amount of um, t4 to t3 conversion which was enabled by your microbiota is that correct yeah, that's right. So I think it's around about, and obviously it'll be varied by individuals, but, it, you know, they estimate it's around about 20% for, for bioactive T3. Yeah, which is, you know, obviously that's going to have a significant clinical effect on people. So it goes via the same, similar, like it can go via the enterohepatic circulation as well. So you can imagine, like, you know, like we're talking about for gut health, obviously it's a fascinating area, which you know, you can talk about for hours and hours or we could talk about And we're still <laughs> hours, only but, chipping away at know, the tip of the iceberg, yeah. Well, this is right. Yeah, exactly right. But if you even just can, can t take gut health and the impact of that on female reproductive health, do you know, and, and gut health is amazing in that it's also one of those areas that, you know, with the right interventions, you can really make a difference mm. to people in terms of how they're feeling and what they're presenting clinically with gut health. And I think that's one of the amazing things um, about about the gut. Yeah. Okay. So when we're talking about sugars, we're talking about its influence on microbiota and, and you know, carbohydrates certainly are going to favour the firmicutes. Um, you know, how do you, do you bother testing the gut microbiota at all? Do you just work on the diet and make sure that you've got, you know, your, your sugar intake to a, a minimum and dietary fibre up and adequate protein and all that sort of thing? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, it can always, I mean, because when you're doing your gut tests, you're not usually just doing your microbiome. So um, when it's in the context of everything else, I think it can be useful. Obviously, you know, as far as when you're getting, when you're getting the, um, the you're like your but see you still test it's really only giving a teeny tiny snapshot of what's actually in the gut because that's just how testing is for mm. it but i still i do think you know when you're getting a lot of the parameters to do with gut you know with your intestinal lining and the parasites and all the other and you know the absorption factors and inflammatory factors that they test for i think it can give a really good overall picture when someone's presenting a certain way um so i think 
not to say I test microbiome and do that for everybody because the test is not necessarily cheap, but I think in some ways, particularly if someone's, you know, presenting in certain ways, it can really, um, it can make your intervention more effective because there's you know with gut health you know as we know with gut symptoms they can be caused by any number of things and sometimes the, the fix is really quick and sometimes it's not <laughs> and when it's not that's where having a test can be really helpful like oh there's actually a parasite that you've had for five years that's really kind of showing it's showing its little head now yeah <laughs> so to speak clinically so, you to, know, speak. so, so to speak <laughs> well let, let's go um, further into clinical interventions i mean yeah. We're talking about assessment in the age of COVID-19 and the changes in practice that we've seen over the last few months, do you find that, say, doing um, Skype interviews, for instance, is actually um, sometimes better because you can actually ask the patient to walk you to their pantry? <laughs> so there's no Oh, it's fantastic. And also because people tend to feel more comfortable because they're in the home environment. Mm. And so you tend to get, obviously, it's useful from, okay, what supplements are you taking? I'm not sure. I can't remember. Okay, can you go get it for me and hold it up not to the sure. screen? Do you know, yeah. that sort of thing. Or, you know, if they haven't taken a photo and sent it to you beforehand. But they're more comfortable. And especially, you know, because I see women largely is that, you know, the tabs we've spoken about before and all the things that they've had to do to get to your office you know, so there are, you know, it's another thing on their list of things to do, <laughs> you know, whereas if you can do it via this way for a lot of women, it's actually that, okay, that's one less thing, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I think intention are more useful in some ways clinical assessment because you're getting people in their environment and they're comfortable and they're not feeling stressed. Oh my gosh, I've got so many things to do and I, you know, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I think, I think I'm, I think it's good the rise of telehealth that people are, are more open to it these days. And efficacy of that changes and and yes. more than that, adherence. How do you find that that works for you with helping to change these people's lives around? Well, I think, it, I mean, whether you're seeing someone face-to-face -face or whether you're seeing someone by this, their motivation would be the same either way. Right. You know, so I think you've always got to meet, well, you've always got to meet someone where they're at. And obviously yep. that's partly to do with all the stuff that top all the things we've spoken about in terms of where they're at with their symptoms and, and their life and all of that, but also meeting them where they're at as far as what their compliance is likely to be. And that's something that, you know, I usually touch on pretty early in the piece as far as, like I said before, I know a lot of information about certain things, but, I mean, I can't do it for you. I can provide you all the support and help and information, but at the end of the day, someone's got to have that motivation to make the changes that you're suggesting. So I find that's the same. Their level of motivation is the same really regardless of if you're seeing them face-to-face -face or in this in this type of modality. Do you ever enter into, like, contracts with them? I, I remember Andrew Heyman, he would constantly challenge his patients to the point that they'd get angry with him and he'd say, okay, so on, on a scale of 1 to 10, how likely are you to do this? And on a scale of 1 to 10, how likely are you to do that and that and that and that? <laughs> and he just said, I will keep doing it because I want to know your your level yes. of commitment and I can gauge what I what I will get out of this, if you like, what how how effective my treatments are going to be or how I need to vary my treatments depending on yes. what you're you're willing to change. Yeah, and I think every clinician does it in a different way, but I think then it does need to be <laughs> some communication one way or the other, whether it's 
you know, that way or whether it's in a, in a different way as far as, okay, well, this really is very much a, a team effort because it doesn't do anyone any favours to, you know, if people aren't going to follow what you suggest to them and everyone's at different stages in their life and they might have been really motivated to start with and then you'll find that they, they, they're really motivated and then they come back and then they drop off once they start to feel better sort of thing and then they come back when things have gone off and that's just the nature of how it goes. So, um, but I think all you can do is be communicating pretty clearly about always to do with educating people as far as I can. I like to do that a lot with patients as far as, okay, they're presenting this way and that's because of X, Y, Z. And so, you know, when people are empowered more with information, they're more likely to, oh, okay, so this, what I'm doing here is, you know, contributing to this and therefore, and, but I find people, say women who are having hormonal issues or if they're trying to have a baby, they tend to be pretty motivated. So when we're changing behaviours and, uh, of no, forgive me, I'll change that. When we're changing behaviours of intake, um, yes. but you've got to be cognisant of the stressors that caused that intake to happen, which interventions do you find gives you best bang for buck? <laughs> yes. So, free, no. <laughs> so like... I know this is a piece of string, I get it, but but commonly do you find that giving up the the teaspoons of sugar because it's a measured dose is something that women are going to adhere to or do you find that reducing a dose, if you like, like being a can of soft drink, mm-hmm. is that the easiest thing that you can reduce their sugar intake, yeah, or do you find that help we, helping with uh, food choices, enabling better food choices and cooking recipes um, is a way to go? Uh, I think it's both, definitely both, and okay. depending on what the person that's in front of you and seeing, because it's human nature. If someone says you can't have that, all of a sudden that's all you can focus on and that's all you want. <laughs> you know, so you need to be working. Okay, so they might have 10 soft drinks a day. Okay, well, let's look at reducing that over time and replacing that with something else. That's a better choice, you know. So, and in the meantime, let's be looking at different strategies for, okay, let's say you're having 10, 10 um, cans of soft drink because it's an energy thing and that's how you're getting through your day because you're getting four hours sleep a night and you've got so many demands on you. So let's look at reducing that and let's look at supporting your energy so you have more energy so you don't have to have that quite as much and let's look at how, you know, your gut health or your thyroid or whatever is presenting for them is, is also contributing to that and doing that, whether it's, you know, obviously through diet and, so, and helping them out with that way and then um, adding in supplements to help them through to, to bring that back in balance. So it's always, it's always a multi-approach really. You can't just... There's no, there's no point in just giving someone magnesium if you're not changing everything else no. or at least in step, small changes gradually depending on how motivated they are and how much they've got going because you also don't want to be adding more stress. It's always that balance between wanting to help them enough that they're making, that they feel changes but not to the point where it's causing more stress. So how often do you have to read the riot act to the partner? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, yeah. It depends on the couple. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> yeah. But, but it's a, I mean, it's a really interesting thing. And I'm, um, Lee and I have this argument all the time and I'm, I'm a male. I mean, I love my barbecue. If I can barbecue, I'm in. But yeah. you and I were speaking earlier about the, the, old, uh, the old joke about, you know, the woman goes and 
organises the children to be able to go out and do the shopping, prepare the food, cut the food up, put it into portions, season the food, and the guy puts it on the barbecue, flips it once. Look what I cooked. Yes, no, that's assembling. But do you find that that partner inclusion is actually an important step about going right back to alleviating the stressors, which can be that compounding thing? On, on I, I think, drivers I think of... yeah, it, yeah, it can be, and it depends on the dynamic of the relationship. Because sometimes it can actually be, you know, the female that's holding on and not wanting to give someone else to do something because they won't do it the same way. Yeah. <laughs> they might do it as well. You know, females we, we tend to be our own worst enemies in that way. Yeah, sometimes do we need to talk, it, Georgia. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it's a case of, you know, where the dynamic is that the, you know, that the female is doing everything, and you know, whether it's that the husband's away or that there's a certain dynamic there. With that, that's um, that's how it's evolved. So, so I think it depends on the picture of that. But for females, it's, I think often it's more the other way, where where we're sort of reluctant to want to give certain things up. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because they won't do it the right way, so to speak. So I think it's, you know, I think we've got to take responsibility for that too. Yeah. Um, okay, so clinical outcomes. Um, how quickly do you find that if you can intervene, let's say in the perfect sugar restriction, how quickly do you find a resolution um, to have a positive outcome, like, for instance, pregnancy? Okay, so I think pregnancy, I don't think you can put a time frame on it because there's always, you know, there's, I mean, it really, well, it depends on the person that you're seeing. If you're seeing someone that's, say, been trying to conceive for 18 months and there's a bit of, it's female factor infertility, but then there's male factor in there as well and that sort of thing, obviously, you know, it's, you can't really get, it's not fair to give someone a particular time frame that's definitely by this stage it's going to happen. You know, but I think, you know, anyone in this sort of area, you want, you want someone to give you as a clinician at least at least a three months for this, you know, for the quality of the eggs and the sperm, you know, but you're wanting more than that. And that's just to get to your starting point of, okay, we're kind of at a bit of a baseline now, assuming yep. that everything has been followed and, and what have you. Whereas if you've got someone that has, you know, menstrual issues or someone that's perimenopausal and that sort of thing, I think interventions, you know, that we've been talking about can, can actually produce results, you know, quicker do you know so like if you've got someone that's has peri like has pms types of issues and you know you take them off um you know to take them off sugar take them off dairy you're you know adding in some magnesium and b6 and things like that um you know they can see results pretty quickly you know whereas someone that might be experiencing different type of fertility issues obviously they can take longer time to unpack that and also then and going in with the right interventions that will produce the results they want yeah and what about um choosing the hero i'm doing air quotation marks again hero supplements <laughs> i know i do it a lot but what about yeah. the hero supplements you know you mentioned magnesium quite a lot of time myo inositol is now freely available yes. in australia that just wasn't available um, i know yes you know let's say five years ago um yes. except i think one product um uh, but then, then there's also the beauty of herbs. So oh, yeah. let's talk about making up a, a prescription. You know, what, what's okay. your... So not everyone I see would have all of these, but if someone is presenting with 
some version of excessive sugar intake and how, depending on what particular system that's impacting on the most, you'd be looking at things like your magnesium for your nutrients, obviously your magnesium, you know, your B6, your myonositol that you mentioned, you know, potentially looking at your lipoic acid and your zinc and your chromium. Those are the sort of things that would be in the mix commonly with, right. with, um, with women. And then you go into your herbs and again, it comes down to really where like where it's being driven from. So if it's sugar cravings, you know, potentially things like St. John's wort and your herbal adaptogens. So, you know, so with, you know, your stress adrenal kind of ones, things I use, you know, combinations I use is things like your ashwagandha and codonopsis and eleuthero and rhodiola or, you know, with annual eleuthero, with shizandra and passionflower and skullcap, I find those to be good, like obviously not all together. There's sort of two different combinations mm. I tend to use. Mm. You know, sleep support, like I'll tend to use things like passionflower and California poppy and skullcap and um carver if they can tolerate it and hops with like a magnesium powder at night time i like that combination that works really well usually i tend to find a bit of both so um and then obviously if you've got pcos if it's appropriate for them things like peony and licorice that sort of stuff so herbs if you can get people to take them especially the liquid ones which is <laughs> a discussion we usually have where usually quite yes. up front and say okay they're not Tastes very nice, but they're amazing. <laughs> and you know, to be honest, when I say that, most people are like, "Oh, I thought it was going to be much worse <laughs> with herbs." <laughs> really um, so we won't do, we won't do any herbs. Sorry, <laughs> I, I was. If you try and put a herb up, if you try and um, say it's not that bad, it, it sure as heck they're going to say it's worse. Oh, it's if you say they're absolutely yeah. disgusting, they're going. Yes. More often than not, they say it wasn't as bad as what I thought, as you say. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I've, well, I've ne oh, to be fair, I've never given anyone, um, you know, your antiparasitic herbs in liquid. I think that would be <laughs> a bit mean, a bit nasty. But, you know, I find also if you tell people to have, uh, say, a handful of walnuts or a handful of almonds after they have their herb mixture, that helps. Don't have a big glass of water because <laughs> you're just prolonging the pain. Yeah. And having some yeah. sort of nuts, sometimes milk. Can help as well so um have that handy afterwards and remember it's only about 2.5 to 5 mils depending yep. on the dose yeah always watered down <laughs> um what about what about things like bitter melon and indeed gymnema on its own to knock out the sugar yeah definitely if that's appropriate for them like i think that's i think that can be like the gymnema can be a bit of a band-aid thing and you know it's one of the first things you learn at herb in herb school first thing is I, and trying it and you think oh my gosh that's quite amazing sugar really isn't that nice at all <laughs> it's a quite a um yeah I, th I think sometimes that can have its place but I think you know I think I'm always more inclined to go particularly with the people that I see you know the sort of females we've been talking about you know stress is, is and it is, is usually a, a playing a role to a certain degree so going down that track more so so then necessarily, and I usually go with the herbs and the nutrients that I mentioned before I'll tend to go with, with those. So yeah. well, I might add into the mixture, but I wouldn't just do a so blood glucose sugar mixture. Do you know what I mean? So and herb you, mixture, I should say. Do you tend to combine, you know, a herbal fluid extract mixture with, um, with your nutrients in whether yes. it be tablet or powder form, that sort of thing to, to make up a... Yeah, I will. So, Strategy. and I try not to give people too many different things, but uh, yeah, that's that's usually what I would do. The most appropriate sort of, you know, um, nutrient that you're talking about, and if they'll take the the liquid herbs, having that as well, because you know, the beauty of liquid herbs, you know, you can modify them and add them, and you can tweak them and really customize them for the person. So, but obviously, it's great now. There's always the tablet version and capsule version if someone's not interested in taking the liquids. So it's good that we've got so many options these days. Yeah.
Yeah. Um, just a quick word about caveats and, and, and responsibility of referral, I guess. When we're dealing with insulin resistance and, you know, we've got a whole population of undiagnosed diabetics, we know that. Um, it's an estimated population, which I love that. But anyway, um, and you've got something as simple as a blood glucose level, um, which if it's going to fluctuate throughout the day, okay, you may or may not have some insulin resistance. But if it's high and you, you, you might have a type 2 diabetic, they're up in the 15s, 20s. Um, yeah, they would necessarily so, need to see their GP and get, get a full assessment. Yeah, oh. but I just, I actually wonder if nat the naturopathic profession could be the vanguard of helping to diagnose and to treat effectively this unrecognised population because nobody's looking at them. Well, I suspect it might be, you know, a little bit like thyroid was a few years ago when <laughs> it was really yeah. good point. largely our profession, you know, as far as that we're yeah. the only ones and I'm talking broadly speaking, there are plenty of, you know, holistic GPs that we're looking into it as well. But like looking at, you know, your subclinical hypothyroid people that we've spoken about where their TSH is normal, but clinically they're presenting with thyroid and something is going on. So I suspect it's the same sort of thing with insulin now is it's becoming more, um, there's more of an awareness now generally, you know, to do with insulin resistance and looking at that and it's not you know it's not just a magic number of one thing and you're under that and you're perfectly healthy mm. <laughs> particularly when you look at you know as Detise spoke about all the different impacts of insulin resistance on the body beyond just weight and you know and diabetes so um, I suspect it might be the same for insulin and insulin resistance over the next few years. Now, time and time again, you've mentioned thyroid and we've also mentioned the yes. impacts of stress on neurotransmitters. So I'm just wondering, would you, I mean, it's a whole new podcast. There's so much more to cover. Would you be amenable to rejoining us on FX Medicine at a later date to discuss those topics? I'd love to, yes. It's sure. Excellent. I'd love it. But thank you so much for taking us through what you've seen in clinic and, and indeed how you've been able to help these women. Um, and in, um, I guess not the least of which, the many tabs that your mind has. I can see you, <laughs> you go like this. It's like an Indian headdress of different tabs. tabs. <laughs> but, but, but I've also seen the diagram. So it's interesting, interesting to see the cogs of your mind go, but hang on, but hang on. But <laughs> so I look forward to... <laughs> I look forward to getting another diagram from you and uh, and delving further into the, um, how we can help um, the issues of thyroid and neurotransmitter upset. So thanks for joining us today on FX Medicine, Georgia. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Cool.